Following the NBA draft withdrawal deadline, we've talked about several decisions that will impact college basketball for the upcoming season. But there's a reigning Final Four team we haven't talked about yet. That's Dusty May's FAU Owls, who are headed to the AAC, they're reloaded, and they're ready to make another run. You are Locked On College Basketball, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hey there, what's up? Welcome into the Locked on College Basketball Podcast, the only daily national college hoops show out there. I'm your host, Isaac Shade, and I want to thank you so much for joining us on today's show. You everydayers in particular, so glad you're here all throughout the offseason, keeping it going through the doldrums of June here we are. Coming up on the show today, going to have an interesting conversation about uh, the the shape of the NBA draft lottery and college players selected in it. We might have something happen this year that's never happened before. I also want to answer a question that came in um, about the transfer portal and isn't it closed? Why are players still going to school? We're going to answer that towards the end, but we do want to start with Boca Raton, Florida, and Dusty May and these Owls who came out of nowhere, if you weren't paying attention, but a team that won 35 games last season en route to the most wins in team history. And now the Owls are getting ready to move to the AAC, although the AAC is losing uh, several of its key constituents to the Big 12. But all the same, they're moving up. And that is ultimately a good thing. But the reason we start with them today is because at the deadline, or at least on the day of the deadline last week on Wednesday, FAU learned officially that they were getting back Elijah Martin and John L. Davis. Now, I think most people probably assumed that this was the case all along, that these guys would both be coming back to school. But as we often say, until it actually happens, you just never No, and you don't want to assume. And so this is great news for Dusty May's team for a multitude of reasons. Probably the biggest of which is you get your two leading scorers back from last season. So essentially, or what I want to answer today is, are the Owls, who are getting back essentially everybody from that Final Four team, including Martin and Davis, Are they a legitimate top five team? That's kind of the conversation people have been having. And so I want to look at that. Now, let's let's start specifically, though, with these two young men who are coming back. Because as we always say, guards win in college basketball, but in particular in March. They just help keep you going through the tournament. So to get back both halves of your starting backcourt is a big, big deal for FAU and man I mean it's just great stuff that you love to look at and see these guys coming back and um, FAU tinkered with a couple lineups there there were two main lineups that each started about half the season there's one that was 17 games and then there was this one that was the final 15 games but it included both Elijah Martin and John L. Davis and and truthfully the the other one didn't have either of those guys, the other starting lineup that played quite a bit. So that's the cool thing though for Florida Atlantic is they had 
ultimately or essentially seven players that started at least 16 games each. And so great stuff for them now. Okay. Tristan Freeman wrote about these guys both coming back and he said of their return quote, it was done by a collective effort, meaning FAU's uh, success last season. It was done by a collective effort with some incredible depth and several transfers that ultimately worked out. But the biggest reason why FAU was so successful was the star backcourt duo of John L. Davis and Elijah Martin. So don't miss that. FAU legitimately really, really was a team effort last year, and that's what brought it all together. But these guys were the engines that made everything go. Again, they were the two leading scorers. John L. led the way with 13.8, followed very closely by Elijah Martin at 13.4. They were the second and third leading rebounders behind only Vlad Golden, and they were right there together with this too, 5.4 and 5.3 rebounds last year for these two young men. And I mean, when we're talking about these backcourt guys getting all those, John L. Davis is 6'4", Elijah Martin is 6'2", but one of the most electric guards I saw in the tournament last year. I mean, so athletic. Um, just love to watch what he does. Both these guys shot over 35% from three last year. So, I mean, you're just getting back so much great stuff if you're FAU. Now, the other um, five players that also started at least 16 games last year are as follows. So, obviously, Davis and Martin, but Vlad Golden, he started all 39 games for the Owls. The only player that did that, Nick Boyd started 37, played in 38. Brian Greenlee started 34, played in 39. Brandon Weatherspoon started 23, played in 39. And Jalen Gaffney started 23, played in 38. And so, I mean, even that alone, on this team, you had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven players that averaged at least 20 minutes a game and nine who averaged at least 15 minutes a game. So Dusty May is in a great spot with what he's doing to run things back. But the question again becomes, are they a legit top five preseason team? Well, let's think back to last year when we were saying the kind of same things about North Carolina, right? <laughs> oh, this team's returning essentially everyone. And uh, so they're preseason number one. Let's do that. Now, I know we're talking about completely different playing fields between a team coming out of CUSA going to the AAC and an ACC team, one of the most dominant teams in all of college basketball history. Um, not, not last year's North Carolina team. I just mean the program itself, but as North Carolina learned the hard way, getting back just about everyone is not the exact same thing. And it doesn't have the guaranteed exact same results. You just can't rely on that. However, here's what's different between those two. It's not apples to apples. North Carolina, the year they went to the national championship two seasons ago, they weren't great for a lot of the season and got great in the final third of the season. Again, FAU won 35 games last season. They were great all season long. It's just a lot of people didn't see them coming. FAU, another difference from Carolina is essentially... What, whereas Carolina got back four of their five starters, bringing in Pete Nance to start where Brady Manick had started. FAU is getting back everybody. 
legitimately their entire starting five, whichever of those combinations you want to go with and their depth. Again, seven players started 16 games or, or more. Here's some other reasons to believe in FAU. Zero, zero transfers out of the program this offseason. And you think about this mid-major team that goes as far as they did. You expect to either have a couple guys go to the draft, um, a couple guys get cherry-picked by high-major school, you know, any of that kind of stuff. Nope, nothing. Zero transfers out. Also, in terms of how high level are they going to be, I think moving up to the AAC, even though, again, the AAC is losing some teams, like notably Houston, um, it's still going to be a step in the right direction for FAU. And, I mean, at the end of the day, it's just silly to think that a Final Four team returning essentially everyone is not going to be that level. And, again, I know we saw a completely flipped version of that last year with North Carolina, but FAU is not North Carolina of last year. So just keep that in mind. Now, as I look at it though, are they a top five team? I think that might be a little too much right after the season. I had them in my top five. Now that we know who's coming back, who's staying, who's going to be in the draft, all that kind of stuff. I would very comfortably put FAU in my top 10. No problem with that at all. Top five. I mean, Kansas, Duke, Michigan State, Purdue, like those four in some order are going to be in that top five for me. And that means FAU would have to beat out everyone else. So Marquette, UConn, Tennessee, any of those schools. I mean, and that's just off the top of my head. FAU is going to have to beat any of them out to be top five. I don't know that they're going to do that, but preseason top 10, Sign me up for that, which that in and of itself is absolutely bonkers. Congrats to the Owls for all of that success. Now, while Elijah Martin and John L. Davis didn't stay in the draft, plenty of players did. What's the top end of this thing? What's the lottery going to look like? I'm going to tell you about it. Some historical numbers that will prove to be pretty interesting. But before we get there, I need to tell you that today's episode is brought to you by our friends at FanDuel. Make a fast break to FanDuel during the NBA playoffs. Woo! Tied up at one right now as I'm recording this because right now new customers get a no sweat first bet up to new number $2,500. That's $2,500 back in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. I love betting with FanDuel for all my sports stuff because they have great promotions literally every day. Their app is safe, secure, and it's super easy to use, not to mention that you can get paid instantly for your winnings. It's so great. Love FanDuel. There's no better place to bet all this playoff action for the NBA than America's number one sports book. So visit FanDuel.com slash locked on and get that no sweat first bet up to $2,500. Once again, that's FanDuel.com slash locked on. FanDuel, official sports betting partner of the NBA. Okay. 
friends right back into this thing once again uh, for you folks who are joining us, you everydayers. So glad you're with us all the time. Great stuff coming up throughout the rest of the week. Andy will be back with you tomorrow on Wednesday show. Leaf Tulene and I will be with you on Thursday show. And then Andy will wrap up the week on Friday. Now, here's what I want to talk about next. I started doing some digging on the lottery because I was really interested um, in the breakdown of how often are college players selected in the lottery versus players from other origins, whether it was high school players when they could still come, whether it was <clears throat> international players, and now in the past couple of years getting into G League Ignite and overtime elite. And the reason I started looking at this was because I was thinking, man, there's a lot of non-college players that could go like essentially in the top five, maybe six, seven, depending on what happens with the Thompson twins. Is that a lot or is that pretty normal? I just didn't have those numbers in my head. And so I thought, you know, as a college basketball person who a lot, a lot of our game could be affected by some of these external sources. So I just wanted to take a look at, at what those numbers look like. So you know me, I went and did a deep dive on it, and I want to share that with you because I think it's really interesting. A history of college players in the lottery. Now, specifically, I want to look at the era in which we've had 14 teams in our lottery because, again, we've got the potential of something unprecedented happening this year in the lottery. So from a lottery standpoint, it starts back in 2005 in terms of 14 teams. So the 2005 lottery coming off of the 0405 season was that first one with um, 14 picks. It was also, by the way, the last one in which um, high school players could come straight out of high school. And so we're um, looking at it in, in that way. That means 18 years of a 14-team lottery. And here's the quick and simple math for you. In those 18 years, there has never, never, hear me, not one slip, not one change, not one difference. 18 years, there's never been fewer than 10 college players selected in that lottery. So 10 of the first 14 picks at least have been college players. And even when it has been that low at 10 college players, that's only happened in two of those 18 years. So just one ninth of the 14 team lottery years. That was in 2005, interestingly enough, the first year of this, and then 2011. Heck, we've had more years where all 14 picks of the lottery have been college players than that. It's happened four times where all 14 picks were college players, 2010, 2012, 13, and 19. And so those four years, all 14 lottery picks were straight out of college. Now, here's why we look at this. Because this year, if you've looked at any NBA mock drafts or if you've paid any attention to this, you know that some of the top players Kind of the assumed number one is Victor Wembanyama coming out of France. And that's going to happen. So if, if you haven't been paying attention, he's the number one pick. Number two and number three, it's either going to be Scoot Henderson, who's coming from G League Ignite, or Brandon Miller from Alabama. Um, and that's the Hornets pick there at two. And so everyone's curious to see what they're going to do at two. And then which of those guys falls to three? Or is somebody else in the mix for 
two and three as well. Um, and because coming right on the heels of those guys are the Thompson twins, Amen and Asar. And um, there's a lot of thought that they might go top five as well. And they are coming from overtime elite. So remember, I said in the history of the lottery, which the 14 team lottery again is 18 years, there's never been fewer than 10 college players selected. We're looking at the possibility of only one college player drafted in the top five. If it's Brandon Miller and then as that one college player, and then the p- potentiality or the possibility that it's Wembenyama, Scoot Henderson, and the Thompson twins as the other four of the top five. What's really interesting about that is that means the top five would be coming from four different points of origin, a college player, an international player coming from France, two overtime elite players, and one G League Ignite player. Um, and so, I mean, that's that's really crazy because in, in the 18 years of the 14-team lottery, we've averaged in the top five picks just 0.6 non-college players, and we've never had more than two. Never had more than two non-college players in the lottery's top five. You hearing me say that? We could have double that this year. We could have four non-college players in the top five. Going beyond that, top 10. In the top 10 players, the average that we've had in the lottery of non-college players selected, top 10 picks is only 1.5. And in the top 10, we've never had um, we've had four once and we've had three, three times. But other than that, it's always been like two or fewer non-college players in the top 10 of the lottery. Pretty wild stuff, really, when you look at it, when you think about it. Now, part of this is for G League Ignite, they've just finished their third year. So this is only their third draft and they've had at least one player drafted every year all three of those years and should again because scoot is going to be right there and might have some more as well for ote they've just finished their excuse me second year of operation and so these thompson twins are going to be not only the first two lottery picks for overtime elite the first two nba draft picks in either round and so really interesting stuff there but the question becomes How does all this affect the collegiate ranks? Great question. I'm so glad to be asked that because I think people want to ask that like, uh, yeah, G League, Overtime Elite, they're cutting in on you, right? Here's the thing. There are always, have been, there always will be external forces drawing players away. And I mean that whether it's like where they're coming from in the draft or where they go to play um, right out of high school. Um, whether that's G League Ignite, whether that's Overtime Elite, whether that's going down to New Zealand or, you know, the Brandon Jennings route, or what I think is a new threat, NBA is moving from two two-way contracts per team to three two-way contracts per team. I think some players might look at that as like a nice thing of like, oh, there's, you know, 30 or so teams in this NBA that are all going to have one more two-way contract on their roster. Maybe that could be me, right? Like that—that that is a realistic external threat to college basketball or keeping guys in. Um, 
But here's the thing. Here's what I would say to that question. College basketball has always been resilient, whether it was players going straight out of high school or whatever it is. And I think it's because college basketball, yes, it is about the players, but fans flock to college basketball, yes, for the players, but more so for the loyalty to a specific team and or because they love the coach. Because in college basketball, the players are rotating, you know, every four years, basically, right? Obviously, there's some that are fewer and some that are more right now because of COVID. But the, the players are constantly changing. But the things that are the same, most of the time, are the coaches and the university itself who you cheer for. And that's what matters in college basketball. And that's why I, I'm not afraid of these other entities coming in to to um, takes and pluck away some of those players. College basketball is going to be just fine. And part of the good news is that NIL has helped keep some of those players that might otherwise have jumped. Um, the differences in college basketball and the NBA, I think have also helped because the players that are high level elite college players that aren't projected as NBA players, a lot more of those are sticking around now, like Drew Timmy or Oscar Sheboy this past year. So that's great. And so honestly, I think that college basketball and the NBA can cohabitate with one another because they're the same game, but there are enough nuances where both are going to have their fans. And I love that. But here's the interesting question going back to the historic numbers at the end of this conversation. Could this be the first ever year that we have more than four non-college basketball players selected in the lottery. I think we are guaranteed to get Wemby and Scoot and the Thompson twins. The question is, does anyone else sneak in there? For example, Leonard Miller um, is kind of existing just on the outside of the lottery right now, could come in. Uh, Wemby's teammate, Bilal Kulabili, uh, I've never known if I'm saying his last name correctly, um, is just quietly climbing up the chart. So we might see him as well. There, there are possibilities there. I don't think it will happen, but keep your eyes on it. Is this the first year that we have fewer than double-digit college players selected in the first 14 picks? That would be a new precedent and definitely something to watch out for. Well, coming up, I want to answer a mailbag question that came in about the transfer portal that I thought other people might have as well. So I want to talk about that coming up in just a second. All right. Mailbag question that came in asking this question. Hey, didn't the NCAA tr close the transfer portal already? Is, isn't it already closed? This is a great question. Um, because I think it's asked because people hear us still talking about like, Hey, this player's in the portal and could go there. This player's in the portal and could go there. So, it's a great question, and the answer is yes, the portal is closed, but there's more to that story. Before we get there, let me provide some context. Again, uh, this question is probably probably being asked because, there's, because we're talking about more players that could go to teams, and you're thinking, but wait a second, the NCAA closed it, right? How can they go to teams? And I'm guessing there's other people out there with that exact same question, so let's unpack it and ultimately answer that question. So prior to this academic year, the 2022-2023 
academic year. The NCAA had not placed guidelines around the timelines of when players could enter the transfer portal. And so ahead of this season that we've just, or this academic year that we're just finishing off, the NCAA created transfer portal windows um, to where each sport or each season has a 60 day window for the transfer portal um, to be open rather than, again, a student athlete being able to go in at any time they saw fit. And so um, regardless of sport, the the main, the biggest chunk of that 60-day window opens the day after postseason participation is announced. Well, what does that mean, Isaac? Let me put it in terms that will maybe make a little more sense. For college basketball, The transfer portal, the main part of it, opened the day after Selection Sunday, the day after when the postseason participants were announced. For college football, it it opened the Monday after the bowl pairings were announced and the CFP pairings were announced the Sunday after the conference championship games. Now, here's where things get a little bit different. For There are three seasons in college athletics, fall, winter, spring. For winter sports, so the season in the middle, the transfer portal window is indeed 60 consecutive days. Just boom, 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 one big transfer portal beginning again the day right after uh, postseason selections are made, running for 60 days. For fall and spring sports, it's a little bit different. It is 60 days, but it's broken up into two sections, a main 45-day chunk and then a secondary 15-day chunk. So for fall sports, basically what happens is they have that main 45 days immediately following um, their postseason announcement. And then uh, for fall sports like football, they have a 15-day window in the spring following their seat on the back end of the season. So this year, that was April 15th through 30th. That was the same for every sport when the spring window was. For spring sports, they have a 15-day fall window, which falls prior to their season. So baseball is in the Super Regionals next weekend. The baseball um, is a spring sport, so the fall window took place last fall at the end of the year. That was December 1st through 15th of 2022. So why these two periods? Why split up these 60 days into 45 and 15? Well, think about, let's use football for an example. You have spring practice. Following that, you have an idea of where you're going to be on the depth chart for the next season, assuming your coaches are being forthright and upfront with you about that. That means if you want to, following spring practice, you could choose to transfer and be immediately eligible to play that next fall. So for example, if I finished spring practice and I transferred right now in April of 2023, that means this school year is still going on. I could transfer and enroll in a new school for the fall and play for that football team this fall 2023. So that's another reason. It just gives a little bit greater mobility and autonomy to these student athletes. So all of this brings us to answer the question. Yes, the transfer portal did close for college basketball back on Thursday, May 11th, 60 days following the Monday after selection Sunday. But here's the rub. Here's where things are different. It's only closed on the front end, meaning 
no pl- players cannot enter the transfer portal anymore. That's done for this cycle. Now, truthfully, here's here's the thing that you don't know: you can enter, you can transfer, but you would have to sit out. The transfer portal for players to be immediately eligible is what's closed. But once you're in, you're good. You can commit to a school whenever. It doesn't matter that the portal has already closed. If you've entered into it, you're golden. So let's say I'm in the portal. That window of 60 days closes. I'm not stuck in some weird limbo where I don't have a country of origin behind me or before me. No, 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 no. If if the transfer portal closes and I'm in the transfer portal, I can sign at any point. I mean, essentially, I, I have up until classes start in the fall to register as long as I can get in. And as long as you still have a scholarship available for me, that's fine. And so that that's what we're looking at. That's what we're talking about. So yes, the transfer portal is closed. No one else can come in, but anyone that's already in can go out. I hope that makes sense to anyone who was curious about what all that meant. Friends, that does it for today's episode of Locked on College Basketball. Thanks again so much for tuning in. If you would, go leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get podcasts. Please make sure to subscribe to the show, smash the like button, and leave comments on your thoughts either on FAU or the transfer portal stuff or what's going to happen with the draft lottery. Once again, Andy will be back with you tomorrow. But until then, apologies to the lawyer family. Let's go Wildcats. Until tomorrow. Peace.